Welcome to the History Tricks, where any resemblance to a boring old history lesson is purely coincidental. And here is your 30-second summary. She was a dancer, a singer, a writer, a poet, a memoirist, a civil rights activist, a director, a teacher, a producer, a mom, a friend. But she was most masterful at sharing her life and wisdom with the most perfect collection of words. The end. Let's talk about Maya Angelou. But first, let's drop her into history. In 1969, in addition to the first moon landing and Woodstock, that year, Golda Meir became the first and as yet only Prime Minister of Israel. The ship, the Queen Elizabeth II, had her maiden voyage from Southampton, England, to New York. Both the 747 Jumbo Jet and the Concord Supersonic Jet began test flights. Richard Nixon was inaugurated as the 37th U.S. President. The naked musical Oh Calcutta opened, and the fully costumed Hello Dolly movie with Barbara Streisand premiered. Both Wendy's Hamburgers and The Gap opened their first doors. Sesame Street, The Brady Bunch, Scooby-Doo, Hee Haw, and Monty Python's Flying Circus all premiered. Star Trek aired its last episode. Jason Bateman, Patton Oswalt, Mo Rocca, Jennifer Aniston, Jennifer Lopez, Kate Blanchett, Sean Coombs, and Jay-Z were all born. Boris Karloff, Dwight D. Eisenhower, Judy Garland, and Jack Kerouac all died. And in 1969, after over 40 years gathering material, Maya Angelou's first book was published. Hello, and welcome to the show. We would like to provide you with a warning. This episode includes an episode of sexual violence, adult themes as to behavior, and episodes of violence from time to time. So if you are listening with small children in the room or anyone sensitive to such matters, I think you should listen by yourself and preview the content before you allow others to listen. And now, without further ado, on with the show. Marguerite Annie Johnson was born on April 4th, 1928 in St. Louis, Missouri, the second child of Bailey Johnson Sr. and Vivian Baxter Johnson. Marguerite's mother, Vivian, was the firstborn and one of two daughters of Thomas and Marguerite Baxter. Her father was a Trinidadian immigrant who lived by the assumption that just To be an American citizen, all you had to do was land on the beaches of Florida and say, I'm an American citizen. Well, for years in his defense, that's functionally how it worked. Correct. And at this time, it wasn't even very hard to become an American citizen, but he never took those steps. Maya's grandmother was the daughter of an enslaved woman and a slave-owning man. She was put up for adoption and raised by a German family, so she spoke for her entire life with a German accent. And was a big fan of both sauerkraut and rye bread. Nice. Vivian grew up in the St. Louis area. Her father, the Trinidadian immigrant, was the rough and tough school of parenting. He called Vivian, who was his oldest child, Papa's little girl boy, because Vivian would keep up with her brothers, which was quite a feat because this family was rough and tough. As they got older, they were referred to in the neighborhood as either the bad backs or the Baxter boys, and they knew how to keep a bully brand intact. Don't walk away from any fight. 
which kind of contrast to Vivian's mother, who loved to get that same group of fighting Baxters into the kitchen and have a children's choir of gospel songs. It was something they did on the regular. She loved listening to her children sing, and then they just go out and play and beat people up. I find Maya's mother's family very fascinating. They're very violent and artistic in equal measure. I mean, you you do not cross them or all hell will break loose, but angels line up to listen when they open their mouths. They were full of charm and danger. Vivian grew up to be a beautiful young woman. She was short, but she was fierce. In 1924, she attracted the attention of a young man named Bailey Johnson. Bailey was the second of two boys of poor Southern family. He had fought in World War I while he was over in Europe, learned to speak French because he was in France. Languages came very easy to him. He left the army as an officer and moved to where he thought was a better life for himself than the Arkansas he grew up in maybe less Jim Crow in St. Louis. So he moved to St. Louis and became a cook, although the family often called him a dietitian, which is fancy. <laughs> <laughs> he was a snappy dresser. He was good in a room. And he had a fake French accent. <laughs> okay, Madonna has done the same thing. Sometimes we have to just be fancy. That's right. That's right. Vivian's brothers put Bailey through the ringer. They were very family loyal. You know, if somebody in their family was in trouble, the whole family was there to defend them. Here was this man coming around and wooing their sister. So it had to be pretty tough for Bailey to be accepted into that family. But Vivian was so smitten that a quick and steamy romance led to marriage, which led to a lot of fighting. Because people who have that kind of passion have it in negative measure, too. Their first child was a boy, Bailey Jr. He was born in 1927. And less than two years later, little baby Marguerite came along. The parents thought maybe life would be easier if they left the St. Louis area, get away from the Baxter family. So they moved to California. Bailey Sr. got a job as a doorman. Mama was actually a registered nurse. What she did at this particular time is a little fuzzy. What she does later is very clear, and we'll get to that when we get to that. Marguerite was at an early age called Maya. Her slightly older brother Bailey couldn't say it and called her Maya sister. Thus, why I myself am still called Book by my family at my great <laughs> age. Same reason a small sibling could not pronounce your name or didn't feel like doing it. So Maya it is, and Maya she shall remain for the rest of our show. Maya had little recollection of her parents together at all. In fact, her parents, who were really chalk and cheese despite their attraction, were divorced before Maya was even three years old. Brother Bailey, age four, and Maya, age three, were sent alone with their tickets pinned to their jackets for the train ride from Long Beach, California, cross country, to their new home with their daddy's mother in the town of Stamps, Arkansas, right on the border with northern Louisiana. If you're trying to think where that might be, it gives me such agita to think <laughs> of these two little like blinking babies holding hands and just bewildered, like hoping for the best. Children are so vulnerable. And if you've ever seen the movie, I Know Why the Caged Bird Sings, you can see, I mean, 
I saw it after I read about this and I thought, exactly. These two tiny little silent children with big bug eyes are just standing there hand in hand by the train tracks. Like, I wonder what the world will present to us now. We have no idea what's happening. I mean, technically, a porter was supposed to take care of them, but he got off the train in Arizona. There were other passengers that took pity on these children and, you know, shared their food with them. But for the most part, it was just the two of them. I had the same feeling as when I see a little child around a pool. I like start to breathe fast, like get her away from the pool. So that must have been scary. I mean, there's a tag. All it says is this child should be delivered to Miss Annie Henderson in Stamps, Arkansas. That was all they had. And they couldn't even read it. Oh, my God. Just the vulnerability. I didn't even want to send my, like, 14-year-old child to extreme sports camp in the modern world with a cell phone. Right. (laughs) Well, Mrs. Annie Henderson, the grandmother, was in a unique position for a woman of color in the South. She owned the store, let's put the capital letters T and S, in the African-American side of town. It was officially had a different name, William Johnson's General Merchandise, but no one called it that. It was the store. But their grandfather, William Johnson, had left grandmother with two small sons and a business when their daddy was just a boy. So she'd been running this store for quite a while. Annie had had two sons, Bailey Sr. and Willie. When Willie was just a little tot, he was crawling on the porch and fell off. He was so injured that for the rest of his life, he walked with a cane. So not only is Annie raising two children on her own in this small town, but she has one child who's disabled in a time where there's not a lot of places to help you with a child like that. Well, Mama as Maya and Bailey started to call their grandmother, and so we will too, was a person of importance on the African-American side of town. All roads lead to the general store, if you think about it. And Uncle Willie became sort of a father figure to them. The white side of town was like a foreign country. It was literally across the tracks in stereotypical fashion. Literally, the tracks divided the sides of town, a place you did not go until you absolutely had to, filled with people you didn't interact with unless absolutely necessary. Something you had to learn very, very early. And Maya tells a story about a white man riding in to the general store's yard to give grandmother a warning. A black man had been seen on the white side of town and had been accused of interfering with a white woman and, quote, the boys were out for blood. So Willie should probably hide, even though it had nothing to do with Willie. So the boys in their white hoods and garments on their horses came around at night. But before they got there, Annie had the kids empty out the potato and onion bins, lay Willie down in them and put the vegetables back on top of him to hide him. So if they came by the house, they wouldn't be able to find him. How horrible is that? And so that's a very vivid memory of, you know, the fear that the white men were coming and no one could stop them. And the only recourse you had was to hide. Mm-hmm. Yeah. that So that education started early. Tread lightly, but it still might not save you, you know. Mm-hmm. Another major episode in Maya's first book is the just impotent anger she felt when these poor white sharecropper girls who were wearing their whiteness like a crown came into the store and started disrespecting Mama and Uncle Willie and taunting them and, and treating them as 
other. I, you know, they performed naked cartwheels. I'm <laughs> just like, I, I don't know. know about that. But there's nothing you can do to even prevent them from stripping your dignity away, too. It was just best to leave them alone, the white people. And the thing that added just another element of pain to this is those white sharecroppers' daughters were living on Mama Annie's property. She had bought a lot of property in town and she had sharecroppers working the property. So they were kind of her tenants and they were treating her like that. Yeah. It was two parallel societies coexisting, which to a certain extent is true today too, I'm sure. Mama was a very religious woman and a a pillar of the church. And just like in the North, as we have talked about before, the African-American church was the one place that the community could gather in large numbers. Do you remember, we talked about this during the IDB Wells episode, right before the Great Migration, all the organization tended to happen in the church. Later, civil rights movements were often headed by church leaders. It was everything from a settlement house to a meeting house to a city hall. It served many purposes. And services went all day Sundays, all day Sundays. And then in the evening, the little family attended prayer meetings or Bible study or um, reading groups. And Maya later said that the gospel songs and the spirituals that she learned to sing at church were her very first experience of poetry or, in fact, of beauty at all. In addition to this church life that they had every day of the week, little Maya helped out at the grocery stores. Little Bailey did too. She would sweep the floors. She would help wait on customers and she learned to read. One of the things that Mama Annie did as soon as they got off the train was start to teach these kids how to read at three and five. It was so important to her because she loved to read. Uncle Willie loved to read. These kids were going to have to love to read and they're going to need that skill to help out in the store. They're also going to need multiplication and Mm -hmm. other math. And Maya later tells a story about how Uncle Willie taught them their multiplication tables. And he would stand them in front of the wood stove, like right in front of it and say, recite your fours, recite your twelves. And it felt like he was going to let them get burned by the stove if they didn't recite them. It never happened. But just that threat really got her math going a heck of a lot faster than mine. Man, I still have trouble with seven times eight, by the way. It's just like one brain cell that just won't fully form. When she would tell the story, she said she got so good at it that in her later years, if she woke up in the middle of the night and someone had said, recite your 12s, she could do it. Like Right there. There is something to be said for learning um, that early something Mm -hmm. because, you know, like every single one of us that grew up when we did, every single one of us can probably recite the preamble, you know, we the people in order to form more perfect union, you know, because of the schoolhouse rock. I was just going to say, I don't recite it, I sing it. (laughs) And we know what a conjunction is perfectly well. Conjunction, what's your function? And what's the magic number, Susan? I don't know. What's the magic (gasps) number? Oh my gosh. Why? Is the magic number. I have zero recall of that one. Oh my goodness. We'll put it in the show notes. <laughs> you know, I'm gonna, as soon as we get done here, I'm going to go look it up. It's like, oh my gosh, I didn't memorize that one. What? <laughs> one thing that she and Bailey both liked to do was help themselves to the free perquisite of a crisp sour pickle straight from the barrel. And that is one of these sense memories that she puts in her book, the smell of mama's excellent cooking or 
the thrill of a snack supper. One of the fondest memories of my own youth too, but they they used to open a can of sardines and slice some cheese and have some crackers and just kind of perch around and have a little, like Jet and I call those crap snack dinners. <laughs> we just love them. I do too. That's my favorite way to eat. I never called it snack. What did she call it? Snap supper? Uh, oh, we call it crap snack supper. <laughs> But Maya did not. It was just summer. <laughs> the murmur of the voices of all the people visiting out on the sales floor. I mean, just she absorbed so much through all of her senses. She learned about hardship and about perseverance because during cotton picking season, her grandmother would get up at four in the morning and open the store so that the cotton workers could come and and get their supplies to tide them over before their dawn to dusk shifts. They came into the store for things to sustain them during their long working day. And she saw them when they came back, how hard they had had to work for such meager, meager rewards. I'm sorry to say that this is the time period where cotton planters dropped the payments that they gave to cotton pickers by 20%. And people were in very hard times. And mama had to figure out how to keep her business afloat during the economic crisis of the depression. It, it was an education in flexibility and in compassion. And she and Bailey got an actual education in this town. The year after Maya had been born, the town of Stamps had worked with the Rosenwald Fund to build a school for African-American children called the Lafayette County Training School. This was a joint project between one of the presidents of Sears Roebuck, you heard me, <laughs> and our old friend Booker T. Washington. Between them and during this program, they built approximately 5,000 schools for African-American kids all over the South. The thing is, this program required community participation for the construction and maintenance. As many as one-third of African-American children in the South during the decades of this program were educated at Rosenwald schools. So what would happen is that the fund would contribute a third of the money and the white community would contribute a third and the African-American community would contribute a third, which to me seems like the hardest third to raise. Right. Um, the Rosenwald Fund would provide plans for the school buildings um, that did not require electricity. They uh, relied on natural light because they were realists and knew that the towns were not going to wire up the African-American school buildings. Right. They would assist in finding the teachers, but the white school boards were responsible for the hiring and paying of them. But it was an opportunity given to this generation that hadn't been given to their parents. And it became a very, very integral part of any community that the school went in. They learned reading, cursive writing, <laughs> cursive writing, <laughs> math, sewing, carpentry in most places just for boys, cooking, public speaking, literature. The communities were very, very proud of having these schools. You were expected to take advantage of this opportunity for education because your parents and grandparents had been denied. And the school was a second hub of the African-American community. Separate, however, was not equal for all the pride. The white school had new books and plenty of supplies and the African-American school often had to operate with hand-me-downs and, you know, nothing to write with. You had to rely on your memory. The white school boards were in charge of hiring teachers. And I don't think it should come as a surprise to you that they paid significantly less for actually higher quality, better educated teachers. 
And these teachers were often very passionate about their mission to enrich the lives of their students and took pains to pass on their zeal for education to their students. So here's me saying that I think that the African-American kids in this town got a better education than their white counterparts. I think even just one element of that, you know, just having to memorize everything instead of, you know, rote writing it down and stuff, I think would give them a better education and help them think better, I guess. This was her life until one Christmas, some presents arrived from California from their mother, question mark, who Maya and Bailey legitimately thought sort of in the back of their mind had been dead this whole time. Otherwise, why they've been living with their grandmother. Right. Why would their mother give them up? The shock sort of broke both of them. They wondered, is it because we are bad or what? Why did we get sent away? And the the knowledge sort of destroyed their tranquility. And then a year later, in came a vision of prosperity and fame that had, I quote, Humpty Dumpty Maya's world, never to be put together again. One day, their father showed up. Maya was just seven. So here's Papa with his refined accent and his stories of the big wide world and the community just rallied around him. Ooh, California. He was fancy. Maya felt very proud of him just because everyone was so in awe of his vast experience. And man, did he eat it up with a spoon, by the way, holding court in that store like he was a king. (laughs) Oh, sure. Well, he's going back home a success. Oh, yeah. 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 We'd all be proud, I guess. Yeah. And it slowly started to dawn on Maya, however, that their father had come to take Bailey and Maya away with him, presumably to California. She kept encountering her grandmother sad and and sewing Maya new dresses and, and not speaking about anything like that. But soon it became clear that they were to go away, away from Mama, away from Uncle Willie, away from the store, away from school, away from everything she had grown to be familiar with. She was in turmoil. Of course, no one asked her opinion. No one asks children anything. But she at one point debated throwing herself into a pond just so the turmoil would end. You know, like, oh my gosh, that's so stressful. Mm -hmm. And she was packed willy-nilly into the back seat of Papa's car with the luggage. Brother Bailey and Daddy were hitting it off magically up there in the front seat for those first 500 miles or so until suddenly, as Maya tells it, and Susan and I were just talking about like how this story does evolve, change, and and get colored in. So Uh did they know they were not going to California at the outset? Um, Maya says no in, in her first autobiography, but who knows? Yeah. And I mean, she told the same stories for years. And each retelling, I mean, she was a storyteller and she was a writer. Each retelling had a little bit of editing, you know, another a twist that wasn't in the one before. That's her prerogative. It was her life. So either they knew they were going to St. Louis or they didn't. But that's where they ended up. With their long lost mother, with their grandparents and three of their uncles in the big city of St. Louis. None of them who they remembered. Welcome to St. Louis. Get your boxes. And they cried. Just the terrible powerlessness of children again. Uh. And Maya wrote in her first autobiography, for all I knew, we were being driven to hell. I imagine that it would almost look that way in comparison to the life that they'd had. You know, the quiet life in stamps with 
loving mama and loving Uncle Willie. And now just the uncles alone. What a volatile environment. Well, Mother Dear, as Bailey started calling her, was beautiful. Too beautiful to have ever had children, Maya thought. That figured. From this early point, she just was like, of course, all the other three members of my family are these beautiful butterflies. And what am I? Here I am. No one ever really understood the concept of um, self-confidence, I don't think. Mm -hmm. No. So they moved in to grandmother and grandfather Baxter's large house. Grandmother Baxter was a force, a force to be reckoned with, and had connections and pull with the police. She was known as a precinct captain. And if you were running for office and needed her to turn out the vote in her area, she turned out the vote. So when she asked for a favor, you did what she asked you to do type of thing. Like that's what kind of pull she had. Also, she had all those dangerous sons who would not play. I mean, she was a force to be reckoned with in the neighborhood. She was feared and obeyed. (laughs) Maya and Bailey basically had to walk through the wonderful land of every vice in order to get to school. There were gambling houses, um, dens of negotiable affection, bars, taverns, so many things happening right in the open that Maya later wrote that she couldn't believe any of this was technically illegal. She had her eyes open to a lot of behaviors. Let's just (laughs) put it that way. She would often, with her brother, go in the back door of a place called Louis Bar and be treated to soda. What? Soda. That's like radical. What a treat. And also um, appetizers. Uh, Shrimp was her favorite. By the regulars. And she, she learned to dance. It's a brand new world. She decided that she was going to treat St. Louis as a foreign country. And everyone that lived there just was a foreigner because that's the only way she could understand what was happening. She, back home at Stamps, for example, would often have a half-inch ham steak. That's what you did. But in St. Louis, it was refined to have the finest paper thin, like you could almost read through it. Slices of ham was considered the height of refinement. Her mother introduced her to a snack that was peanuts and jelly beans put in a bag and shaken together. So you got the salty and sweet in one taste. That was like her favorite (laughs) thing. Because back home, you'd get these peanuts out of the field and roast them in the, you know, in the wood stove. (laughs) Right, <laughs> that's what right. Did. But here it was just like so fancy and so strange. There was indoor plumbing. There were all these people, always the sound of traffic. Somebody was always awake. And so that's all she could do to make sense of it was to just treat it like she had moved to a different country. Well, the school they went to was big. The building was new. It was nice, but it was full of strangers. And then the kids who'd had the benefit of those teachers in Stamps, Arkansas, And also the math needed to make change to customers and the influence of Uncle Willie and the hot cook stove to learn their (laughs) multiplication tables um, really, really exceeded the performance of everyone else in their school. They were so far ahead of other children in their grades that they both skipped a grade. She had a public library. She'd been reading the books that Mama Annie had and the books that were available at the Black School and Stamps. But in St. Louis, she had a public library that she could go to and so many books that she could read and just escape into.
This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp. Is there something interfering with your happiness or maybe preventing you from achieving your goals? Do you even know what your goals are? Do you know that you can be happy? BetterHelp is there to help you. They've helped me. The thing I was having the most problems with were what this past year has done for me, you know, when what my next steps in my life are. And my BetterHelp therapist helped me set some goals and some strategies. But you don't just have to take my word for it. I pulled a couple of reviews right from the BetterHelp website. Quote, this was my first experience with therapy, and I was at complete ease. My counselor is genuine, inviting, easygoing, and cares. Here's another one about their specific counselor. Quote, honestly, if it wasn't for her, I don't know how I would have been able to deal with this tough time that I'm going through. I'm so happy that I took the initiative and the leap of faith to join. BetterHelp wants to help you start living happier today. Visit BetterHelp.com slash HistoryChicks. That's help, H-E-L-P. And join over 1 million people who've taken charge of their mental health with the help of an experienced professional. As a special offer for History Chicks listeners, you can get 10% off your first month at BetterHelp.com slash HistoryChicks. After a while, Vivian decided she needed to live outside of her parents' house. So she moved in with her boyfriend. We're just going to call him Mr. Freeman. Obviously took the kids. And it was just the four of them in this house. But Vivian had a job. She was a nurse probably at this time. So she was gone a lot of the time. And Mr. Freeman would take care of the children. And before we get into any story of Mr. Freeman, I would like to give a second warning in case you didn't hear the first one to people listening with children. This is the point where you probably want to turn the show off for a little bit and listen by yourself before you let them listen. Mm -hmm. Yeah, good idea. Because Mr. Freeman was not a good man. No, he wasn't. It didn't take long for him with all this time with the children to begin to groom Maya. Come sit on my lap. What are you afraid of? You know, don't listen to your inner voice. Do what I'm saying. Come sit with me. Give me a hug. Give me a kiss. Well, that rapidly escalated till one night. She's just seven and he sexually assaulted her. He said to her, if you tell, I will kill your brother Bailey. There was blood on her clothes, so she slid it under her mattress and was in her room crying. And her mother came home from work and thought, oh, no, the measles. That is going around. Okay, well, you don't look well. Go ahead and lay down. And for a couple of days, Maya was very sick with what her mother legitimately thought because of her work, I think. Mm -hmm. um, and the fact that she knew the measles were going around like, oh, uh, she even gave Bailey calamine lotion. You watch her arms. When those things start coming up, you paint her arms like she was legitimately convinced that it was the measles. And Mr. Freeman got spooked because Bailey, he tried to keep Bailey out of the room. The mom's like, it's better that they both get it just for me. You know, right. Right. <laughs> let's well, have him just sit in there. Let's bet. Let's get it over with. Bailey. Can that's how I got chicken pox. Yeah. Yeah. So Mr. Freeman was unsuccessful at keeping Bailey out of her room and he got spooked and he moved out away. Just, oh no, you know, uh, my, my plan might be going downhill. And then when they were changing Maya's sheets, 
because they said they were very sweaty and she needed fresh sheets because she'd been sick. Her mother and Bailey discovered the underclothing and realized what was going on. And her mother took her, to her credit, immediately to the hospital. But Maya would not tell who had done it. And it was Bailey who finally convinced her to tell. So Bailey knew who to tell. And he ran directly to tell the most powerful member of the family, Grandma Baxter. And Mr. Freeman was arrested. But Maya had to testify against him in court. The terror of this. She's seven years old. And something that struck me is she begged her mother to let her wear her old coat from her stamps days because it made her feel more secure. And her mother allowed her to wear it. So she's there thinking, legitimately thinking that she had brought this all on herself and that it was all her fault because maybe she was a bad person. And that's why it happened, all of this. And when the defense attorney asked if Mr. Freeman had ever touched her before her, quote, claim of rape, and I get that it's the defense attorney's job to defend his client, but gross. I mean, gross. Maya felt horrible because she'd kept a secret from her brother for all this time, and she said no, just this once. And Mr. Freeman was only sentenced to a year and a day in jail for this crime, and he was released that same afternoon, which was astonishing to me until I thought about it a little. Because that night, a white policeman came to their house and Maya was terrified. Okay, this white man is coming to take me away. I lied. I said I was going to tell the truth and nothing but the truth. And then I didn't. And I lied under oath and I'm going to hell. And she was just convinced that that policeman was going to take her away. And she was preparing to scream, but was in fact frozen solid in the living room. And the man asked for her grandma and said, he took his hat off, by the way. That was a detail that I thought was interesting. Mm -hmm. I thought you should know that Freeman's been found dead, kicked to death by the look of it, we guess. And then grandma said, well, that's too bad. Thanks for bringing the news. Tell your mother I said hi. Now, common sense tells me from here that and everyone included, I think, that mm -hmm. Maya's uncles took care of business and likely grandma had him released for that very reason. That is why, because I was so, like, he only got a day mm -hmm. and then was released. Yeah. I'm like, that is shocking. But then the fact that this policeman came to like, by the way, weird thing happened. Oh, really? Have some lemonade. How's your mom? Yeah. She took care of business. The uncles did. Um, I mean, do you think I'm right? I think you're absolutely right. And Maya, however, blamed herself. I lied and someone died. I have officially sold myself to the devil. She thought that her voice, just speaking up, had killed him, that her voice could kill. And in that moment, she decided she couldn't use that voice because more people would die. So she stopped talking. She figured that the only person she could talk to safely was Bailey because she had so much love for him that it would counteract what she saw as the poison of her being coming out at people. <sighs> it was a trauma response, but no one was allowed to speak of it in the house. Grandmother Baxter forbade it. And after several weeks of physical healing, the visiting nurse pronounced Maya well again, and everyone just expected her to snap out of it. She was well, they said. She was well. What was this no talking? And people started to give her beatings for being, quote, uppity and stubborn and not speaking. And they were very impatient with it. So Vivian just threw up her hands and said, well, if you're not going to talk here, I'm just going to send you both back to live with Mama Annie in Stamps, Arkansas. So she did. 
But even returning to that loving home of her grandmother, the familiarity, the smells, the scents, the slow pace of life in Stamps, Arkansas, little Maya didn't talk because she was convinced the power of her voice. It could hurt anybody. She can't use it. She didn't speak at home. She didn't speak at school, not at church or the store, just not at all. I think the difference here is Mama Annie was a lot more patient with her. Yes? Am I wrong with that? I just think also that perhaps Mama, this is Grandma, Mama was just more like Mama was more attuned to what was going on. In, in some way. And Maya wrote in her autobiography that people in stamps just regarded her as a s- person with a sensitive nature and people made accommodations for that kind of behavior. Mm-hmm. It's almost like you've known everyone since birth and people just are what they are. And so. Right. Right. Um, Vivian didn't send them there for that reason, but what a good place for Maya to be at this point in her life. And Bailey did all the talking, bless him. He talked to everyone that came to the store to hear all about California and um, took the burden of like deflecting everybody's attention from Maya. And no one talked to her about what had happened. And she kind of lived in fear that Mama and Uncle Willie had been told. And she didn't want to know if they knew what had happened. Mm -hmm. She just wanted to just pretend they didn't know. She often caught Uncle Willie staring at her very sadly. And she was like, la, 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 in her mind. You know, like, yeah, these people truly love her. So because everyone was allowing her to continue her silence, what she did was retreat into books. Books were always something that she had found comfort in and adventure and escapism. So her reading amped up. She's seven, eight years old. She's reading Shakespeare. She's reading poetry. She's reading Langston Hughes and Poe and the Bronte sisters. And Dickens. And Dickens. She loved Dickens. I love this. She said that later that Shakespeare was her first white love. Hmm. I know. I love that. She not only was absorbing everything from these books, but everything around her. She just watched. She watched people. She watched the way they moved and communicated silently to each other. It was like they weren't really looking at her so she could study them, which is what she did. Because everybody was accepting of her silence, her teachers all were, her classmates were, but they got a new teacher, a Miss Williams. And she refused to, as she looked at it, play along with Maya's shenanigans. She got very frustrated with her when she wouldn't talk. She insisted, you can talk, you just won't talk. And the whole class was like, no, she doesn't talk, just keep going. And that just angered the teacher even more. And she walked up to Maya and she yelled, speak, speak at her. And she got silence as a response. So Miss Williams slapped Maya very hard in the face. Maya raced out of the classroom. Bailey was right at her heels. They raced home and Mama Annie's like, what happened? And Bailey told her, Mama Annie brushed her hands off and walked the kids back to school. When she got to the classroom, Miss Williams said, may I help you? And Mama Annie said, are you someone's grandchild? And she said, of course. So Mama Annie said, well, this is my grandbaby. And she slapped Miss Williams right across the face and said, no one should slap anyone. So 
I'm wrong, but I wanted to teach you a lesson. Continue with your schooling. Let's get, let's get our day going. That night, there was a cake that Maya loved. It was Mama Annie's caramel cake. It was her very favorite. And it was very labor intensive. And I can tell you it was because I made it. <laughs> um, <laughs> that night, Mama Annie came out with the cake and little Maya's eyes just got wide like, oh, that's my favorite. And Uncle Willie leaned over and told her, Mama made it to tell you how much we love you and how precious you are. I'm sorry. I'm like all chills. I love Mama Annie so much. I Yeah. Yeah. Even though she wasn't physically demonstrative. Right. Like she wasn't a hugger, kisser, but she loved those kids. And it was so evident, even without the caramel cake. I think this incident got some wheels turning in mama's head and she was casting about for what she could do to genuinely help Maya out of this behavior, which wouldn't serve her as she grew older in the big wide world. And she reached out to a customer of hers, an extraordinarily refined lady who Maya later described as, quote, a gentlewoman like the white ladies in books who walked the moors, whatever those were. I thought that was funny. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> this refined lady who grandmother called Sister Flowers, even though they didn't go to the same church, Maya never really understood that. They would meet and, and have little polite conversations and mama spoke differently when she was around and Mrs. Flowers always wore gloves everywhere and um was never, never expected to carry her own groceries home. In fact, Bailey was sent with the groceries later because Mrs. Flowers did not carry her own groceries. One day, Mrs. Flowers said, you know, I'd rather have Marguerite if it's all the same to you. It was a big deal to go to Mrs. Flowers' house. Mrs. Flowers was an icon in the African-American community. Maya wrote, Mrs. Flowers made me proud to be a Negro just by being herself. It was a big deal to be asked to go to her house. In fact, such a big deal that Mama asked Maya to change her dress before she went over there to deliver the groceries. It was an event. It was. And when Maya got there, she dropped off the groceries and she was invited in for lemonade and sugar cookies. And Mrs. Flowers just began to talk. So, Marguerite, said Mrs. Flowers, I understand that you like to read. And Maya nodded her head and she said, you know, that just reading the words isn't enough. You need to hear them, to speak them, to truly appreciate them and truly appreciate their beauty. So Mrs. Flowers pulled out what she said was her favorite book, and she began to read it out loud to Maya. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. Now, Maya had read that book. She knew what it was, but she had never heard that book. Just hearing that line being spoken so eloquently, it blew her mind. That's right. It does change in meaning. I do understand it more. She's thinking, but not saying. And Mrs. Flowers was very patient. And when they finished that day, she sent her off with a book of poetry to read. Next time you pay me a visit, I want you to recite. And Maya's like, oh. The aristocrat of Stamps, Arkansas, is expecting something of me. And she is just like, oh, this is this is serious. Like she wanted to please her and was inspired by the fact that the words seemed to have music when they were spoken out loud. Like, are those the same words I read at 10, A Tale of Two Cities? Look around you. Did we <laughs> read A Tale of Two Cities at 10? But that was amazing. And so she got under her grandmother's bed 
and looked at the poems and and recited them in her head and she picked one and then under the bed, I mean, hidden, she practiced and said things out loud and she credited Mrs. Flowers later. It was through her and through poetry that I began to speak. And soon Mrs. Flowers challenged her to go to the library and start with A and just read all the books, even if you don't understand all the words, you know? read them. Mm -hmm. And she said, those books showed me doors that led to freedom. She fell in love with Tolstoy and Dickens. She loved the Bronte sisters. She loved Daphne du Maurier and Rebecca. That book is dark. (laughs) That's a dark book. (laughs) But she's reading them differently. You know, she may have read those books before, but this time with what she has just learned and internalized about the beauty and the music of words, they were different books for her. Right. Mrs. Flowers also encouraged her to start writing to develop her written as well as her audible voice. And that's what Maya did. She started just writing whatever, a journal or poetry. She was so inspired by what she was reading and what she had learned that she was starting to put it on paper. And I honestly think the more that you read, the better of a writer you are. Some of her early writing, which survives, similar to the Bronte sisters, in fact, (laughs) um, some of her earliest writing was um, descriptions of scenes that she saw, like wagons going by the store or that kind of thing, which is an interesting window into a time. It's almost like a time travel peephole into what was happening, like little snapshots of the past. So I love that too. Mrs. Flowers, man. I know. And here's to Mama, Grandma, for knowing who to ask to help her granddaughter. I'm glad she was there. Something Maya said about all the books she read during this time period, this was in a later interview, that she was educated by the writers she wrote, not just about their characters or their time periods, but about Maya herself, what I could hope for, what depths I could explore in my own self, what strengths I needed to develop to exist in the world. Writers long dead gave me an education, she said. I think that's true of all of us that read. Oh, oh, I know. And I, when you had said about her earlier writing being very descriptive, when I read, it's a movie in my head. So I can understand how she would write like that, you know, wanting to, a lot of people when they're starting to write, write like this a little too much sometimes, you know, the descriptions, what they see, what they smell, what they hear, so that that movie can play in their heads while they're writing the story. But all was not rosy. There was a brief interval, very brief, when Maya was sent at 10 out to service to be the, quote, extra help in a white woman's house. It's basically like the worst version of Hilly Holbrook from the help you've ever seen in your life. A persnickety, um, just so prejudiced woman who decided that the name Marguerite was too fancy and long, I'm just going to call you Mary. And she was so humiliated. That's like not my name. Why did you just decide that you're going to call me Mary? And it was like the horror. And the cook, whose name was Glory, said she did it to me too. My actual name's Hallelujah. I've been working here for 20 years. And she's called me Glory. And Maya just felt oppressed. Like all the white ladies who she really had had no exposure to were so condescending to her and made her feel small again in a way she had just been opening like a flower under the tutelage of Mrs. Flowers. And now here these people were trying to cram her back in a box and it was making her feel horrible. Bailey had the idea. Bailey got her out of this situation. 
He's like, what's that lady's favorite thing in the house? Her mother's china from Virginia, said Maya. And he goes, well, you just get the biggest piece of that china and then wait until she's in the next room and you drop it on the ground. And it worked like a charm. She was fired immediately. And so that's the end of domestic service as a small child. So there's one experiment, but Bailey, oh my gosh, things started to happen. As Bailey was getting older, there was great concern for his welfare. Little tiny boys of color are one thing, but as they grow into almost grown men, the other side of town started to treat them very, very differently. And one night, Bailey stayed too late at a movie theater. He got a stab in his heart because he saw a woman on the screen, an actress that looked just like his mother, and he couldn't tear himself away. And he sat through a second sitting just so he could see, quote, his mother again. It was the white actress named Kay Francis, who to him looked enough like his mother that he was just frozen. But of course, there's no cell phones and they don't know where he is. And they just know he's hours late coming home from where he said he was going to be. And there was panic. And by the time he got home, the entire African-American side of town was head up and full of stress. And he definitely got a beating for that. And it was no joke. Joe Lewis was on the radio having just won the heavyweight championship of the world. And everyone on that side of town was so excited and so happy. Like their guy had won. An African-American man was the heavyweight champion of the world. But everyone knew they had to camp wherever they had heard it because they could not risk being out on a street where white men could see them and make them pay for Joe Lewis's victory. So everybody slept on the floor of the store. So it's just like, that's the environment we're in. Mm, yeah. Bailey was developing into a, you know, he's a teenage boy. And that just that incident alone didn't actually cure him. If he was walking and a white person was on the sidewalk, he knew that he had to get in the street, but he would dramatically say, you know, wave his hand, sir, you know, kind of thing, instead of just a polite nod, as most of his community would have done. He was pushing some boundaries in a town where lynching was definitely a possibility. So Maya turned 12 and there was a major town event happening called eighth grade graduation. We spoke before how important that was in this town. The whole town is proud of you. The whole town is rooting for you. The whole town has dropped by the store, giving you nickels they can very ill spare from their budget or pennies and praise and congratulations and handshakes and hugs. You have a beautiful new yellow dress that you look beautiful in. Your class chose to appear in yellow. Grandmothers, mothers, and aunts, although given the place where they were, they were aunts have worked their fingers to the bone embroidering and making these dresses brand new. Shoes were borrowed. Hair was done. You felt important. You were valued. You were powerful. It was a big, big day. Unfortunately, the white speaker that they had at graduation got up on stage and told the assembled crowd, all African-Americans, about all the new things the school board had bought for the different schools in town. The white school was getting a new chemistry lab. The white school was getting a biology teacher. The white school was getting an art department and a music department, etc. And that your school, the quote Negro school, was going to get a new athletic field and will make you a new carpentry workshop. 
And Maya said, the man's dead words fell like bricks around the auditorium and too many settled in my belly. So the white kids were going to have a chance to become Galileos and Madame Curie and Edison and Paul Gauguin and our boys and the girls weren't even in on any improvements anyway, would just try to be Jesse Owens's or Joe Lewis's, and that's all they could aspire to. We were destined to be maids and farmers and washerwomen and should not dream of anything higher. And she just got filled with anger. And she wrote in her autobiography, which concrete angel glued to what county seat has decided if my brother wanted to become a lawyer, he had to first pay penance for the color of his skin by picking cotton and hoeing corn and studying correspondence books at night for 20 years. She was angry, so angry, not just on her own behalf, but on behalf of the entirety of her race. And the energy in this room, deflated as if that man had punctured everyone in the head. I mean, it it just became grim. This man had infected the ceremony with the outside world. I mean, (sighs) on a day it was supposed to be joyous and it traditionally had been. And that's what everyone is expecting. And this is what happens. Yeah. But the valedictorian, whose name was Henry Reed, he got up and he turned to the class and started to sing Lift Every Voice and Sing, which was known then as the Negro National Anthem and is known even now as the Black National Anthem. I Surely you have heard it. Um, we're going to post a, maybe a link to the lyrics, but it was an act of solidarity and of community and of hope and pride. And it was a message to the audience like, no, 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 no. We are going to get back to where we were 10 minutes ago. Mm -hmm. We're not going to let this happen. Let's all gather together. Everyone knew the words. We'll give you a link to the lyrics because I think it's important and I think you should listen to it. As a matter of fact, the NFL did a sort of misguided effort to play it before all of their um, games this past season ahead of the national anthem. And, And I don't know that it was very well received. I guess I see the impulse, but it was almost like pandering. Like instead of doing something real, they decided to play that. You know, I don't know. I'm not going to get involved in that because it's really not up to me to have an opinion on that. But I do have an opinion that everyone should listen to that song and should listen to the words. Some of the words, it starts out, lift every voice and sing till earth and heaven ring, ring with the harmonies of liberty. And then We have come over a way that with tears have been watered. We have come threading our path through the blood of the slaughtered. So it basically is um, hearkening back to how far African-Americans have come through slavery and oppression and Jim Crow. And this was written right at the time of um, like the Great Migration to New York and became popular at the turn of the century. So it had been around for many decades. So I just want to say that it worked. It it worked on the audience. It worked on Maya. And she said, I was not just a proud member of the graduating class in a yellow dress. I was now a proud member of the wonderful Negro race. And to that, I just say poetry has power, kind of beyond its words. Mrs. Flowers was right.
you've heard me talk about Third Love's Fit Finder quiz in the past. And Third Love has just launched The Fitting Room. It's a new and improved version of the quiz that we all know and love. You go to thirdlove.com. You take their quiz. This quiz focuses on size, breast shape, current fit issues, and your personal style. And what they'll do is pull a few bras from their collection, just like if you were at an upscale lingerie boutique. Now, I have a lot of friends who tell me that they just don't like wearing bras. Since they've begun working from home, they're a lot more casual and they enjoy the freedom of not wearing a bra. To those people, I'm going to direct you to the latest bra that I got. It's called a Smoothing Scoop Wireless Bra. It's a pullover bra. It smooths out my back. It keeps things from flopping around. Feels like maybe I'm wearing, if anything, a camisole. Third Love knows your one true fit is out there. So right now they're offering our listeners 20% off your first order. Go to thirdlove.com slash chicks now to find your perfect fitting bra and get 20% off your first purchase. That's Third Love, spell it out, T-H-I-R-D-L-O-V-E dot com slash chicks for 20% off today. So graduation is over, the town goes back to normal, and unfortunately, the real world reaches its rotten hand into the family's life again. Bailey came home not long after graduation, traumatized and in shock after having seen a dead victim of a lynching pulled out of the water, and white men standing by made him help carry the poor man's body. And lay it out. And just the cruelty of the white men's amusement at the situation and the callousness with which they had treated the poor victim really traumatized Bailey greatly. And Mama realized and decided then and there that her grandchildren had to get out of the South. This was no place for them to become adults in. And they should go live in California with one of their parents. It was decided that they would make two trips out. Bailey would stay in Stamps for just a little while longer, presumably to take care of Uncle Willie when the truth was absolutely the reverse. Willie was keeping an eye on Bailey. Mama Annie and Maya took the train out to California and were greeted in California by Maya's mother. When they got off the train, Maya was greeted by this woman running towards her in high heels and a tight skirt with her arms outstretched, looking like a movie star. How can that be my mother? She's too glamorous, too gorgeous. Now, Vivian, at this point, had switched professions. She was a professional gambler. She ran a few gambling dens. She lived in a very large Victorian house that was elaborately furnished, and she ran it as a boarding house. She was adventurous and outgoing and vivacious, and to Maya's eyes, so ladylike. What Maya, of course, wasn't seeing was the switchblade and the gun that Vivian always packed with her, and she knew how to use them 
from experience, but just greeted by this superstar, not knowing that the superstar is ready to fight. I was like, did we not know her? Because at this point, a 13 year old Maya is six feet tall. She's considered herself very awkward. She's quiet. She's reserved. And she was exactly the opposite of her diminutive, well-dressed, glamorous mother. What a shock to her system. (laughs) So once they were settled and man, did Maya admire her grandmother for having come out there and quote, shopped in stores bigger than the actual town where she had grown up her whole life. She met Mexican people for the first time. She dealt with landlords. She made friends almost instantly at the church because that's what mama was all about. And then her grandmother left to go back to Stamps when Bailey came. When Bailey arrived, he took one look at his mother and fell instantly in love. Of course, he didn't have the same life experiences that Maya had had with her mother. So he came in going, holy cow, that's my mom. I love her so much. And they just both got along so great right from the start. And there's Maya, not even able to call Vivian mother yet. So uh, I have to say my own children, when they were infants, I always said, my daughter loved me. I could tell by her eyes, but my two (laughs) sons, they adored me. And I think that's the look that Bailey gave Vivian is the moment he saw her and they just connected. Right. And there had been a touch of that when he was a small child. But now that he was treated more like a grown up, he it kind of Mm -hmm. blossomed into true adoration. I think you're right. They got them all settled with Mother Deer and Mother Deer was in charge. And I will say, man, Mother Deer was adventurous. She made sure her children went out to different restaurants. Like they had Chinese food for the first time. They had pizza for the first time. They had Hungarian goulash. We learned a lot about other people through their food, says Maya. And she started to look around at the city and San Francisco and was really, really intrigued by it. She loved the beauty of San Francisco and it just seemed so free there to live in a city. People weren't always up in your business. And she said that in this city, she, for the first time, perceived herself as part of something. The city became, for me, the ideal of what I wanted to be as a grown-up. Friendly, but never gushing. Cool, but not distant. Distinguished, but without awful stiffness. So she's taken as her model the behavior of a city as how she wants to grow up. What a wonderful age to be doing something like that. As far as looking at her mother as a role model, Maya didn't warm to Vivian very much. She knew that she was a mother. She didn't think she looked like a mother. Even though Vivian was being very gentle and very patient, she was open. She was understanding. Maya just couldn't call her mother. She called her lady for the best reason. She thought she looked like a lady. And so Vivian said, okay. And I think there was a perfectly natural resentment of the fact that her mother had sent her away after her trauma rather than deal with it. I mean, we can't Mm -hmm. even discount that Mm -hmm. that happened. I know it was like half an hour ago on our show, but it was a defining moment in Maya's life. The period where her mother had grievously let her down. Well, another defining moment happened to America in 1941. America had a trauma of its own. The Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor and the whole psychology of the country changed to a mood of war. Almost immediately, 
In the town of San Francisco, Maya witnessed the astonishing racism directed this time not at the African-American community, but at the Japanese-American community, who were pretty wholesale deprived of their property and rounded up and taken to detention camps, which at the time were not widely protested or even seen as anything wrong. That's astonishing to me. So I'm sorry to say that I did not have a very thorough education in the Japanese internment camps. And that is a rabbit hole that I plan to fall down. Yeah, I didn't as a kid either. I learned about it, you know, since we've been doing the show. I had no idea. So I wonder how many people we're telling right now. But unfortunately, the prejudice did not stop there. It imported itself. Factories to provide war materials sprung up all over town and attracted the very elements of the South that they had moved to California to get away from. White sharecroppers moved for the better opportunity and higher wages of the factories and... African-Americans moved for the same opportunities, and here they were side by side working together and rather than coalesce into one fighting force against the enemy, unfortunately, Maya said their differences rankled and festered within the walls of the factories and spilled out into the streets. Maya herself went to a nearly all-white high school called George Washington High School, where she was one of only three Black students on campus. Her favorite class there was called Civics and Current Events, which was taught by the teacher using newspapers rather than textbooks. And she thought that was a very novel way to learn. I myself took a class that was based on advertisements, current advertisements of the time that I found that one of the best history classes I've ever taken. But Maya remembers that teacher with great fondness and often went back to visit her. Now, it wasn't only her work at George Washington High School that formed her education. Due to a scholarship she had applied for and gotten, she was able to take evening classes in both drama and dance. And her mother encouraged these. In fact, Maya was encouraged to bring home her homework for dance class and they'd push all the furniture back and roll up the rug and set some music on and let's all dance. Let's all learn what you've learned today. And mother was very supportive of these kind of endeavors. She was and she was understanding and, you know, she didn't read any books. I think it really just came naturally to her to be open minded and to listen to her kids what they want to do. She's going to support them. She's going to encourage them, but she's also going to ask them to do the legwork. You know, Maya, go find a school. Maya, if you can figure out a way to pay for it, let's do that. You do it. You know, that's such good parenting of teenagers, I think, to get that independence going at this particularly important time in their lives. But underlying that, I just want to stress that I do believe that Maya never fully maybe forgave her mother, at least not at this time, for having sent her away to stamps instead no. of dealing with her trauma. No. And but I think Vivian was in it for the long haul. Right. She knew it wasn't going to happen overnight. It Maya's still calling her lady, not mother. Right. Right. They do grow significantly closer later in life, but right now it's a little formal, I think, their relationship. Mm -hmm. Although mother did wake them up in the middle of the night to go have crap snacks over in the kitchen <laughs> and listen to music sometimes when something looks good on the radio. So, so there's that too. And what I think teenagers need is both the freedom to go explore and the knowledge that they're going to have somewhere secure to come back to. Mother had remarried to a man that she called Daddy Clydell. His name was Clydell Jackson. 
And he was a kind man and a patient man and and not a force of fear. That's a low bar, but but he really was a, a very good man in contrast to Mr. Freeman. He um, taught her how to play poker, which she was really good at because of her <laughs> math skills and her memory. She was a natural right out of the gate. But it was a pretty happy and stable establishment full of, you know, activity and learning and just stability. So she felt that she could leave from here to go on a little adventure to go visit her father. Her father had settled in San Diego. And that particular summer, Bailey went for three weeks, had a great time, came back. And then it was Maya's turn to go down and spend three weeks with her father. When she got there, she found out that her father had a very pretty, very young fiance who also lived in the house. Now, this fiance, whose name is Dolores, was told that Maya was eight years old. So she's expecting this petite little child with big eyes and a nice little dress that she could hold by the hand and take to buy a dolly and give a piece of candy and Bob's your uncle, you know, like, Mm -hmm. I'm in, I'm the new stepmom. But instead, she gets this six foot tall, 15 year old who's hardly younger than she is and is not about to call her stepmother and be happy with a doll and a piece of candy. And it is jealousy. I think, Mm -hmm. that kind of slams this woman's heart against Maya from the very beginning. Oh, no, this is going to be a rival for my man's affections. This is not going to be someone to fold into the bosom of the family. Right. And fueling that, Papa Bailey decided to take Maya down to Mexico. He had learned Spanish by visiting Mexico, just like he had learned French by visiting France. So he was fluent in Spanish. He also had another woman across the border, which is probably why Dolores never went with him. But Maya going with him was just fine. It was an adventure for the two of them. But by the end of the day and too much drinking, Papa Bailey was so drunk, he couldn't drive home. So 15-year-old Maya, without a driver's license, decided that the safest way to get there would be her driving. And she did it. (laughs) I don't know if any of you have driven a car without power steering and power assist brakes. You literally have to practically stand. Your booty comes off the seat. (laughs) You stand on the pedal and only then might you stop at a stop sign. But here she was going 50 miles down a mountainside. (laughs) And I am astonished that she did not go off a cliff. She did not hit a rock wall. She did not hit another car until they got to the border and the flat where she plowed in to another parked car in the line to get across the border. <laughs> dun, dun, dun. <laughs> she thought her father was going to be very mad. On one hand, that was like, oh, no. And on the other hand, she's really mad, too, that her father even put her in this position because she was sitting outside a bar in an open-topped car in a foreign country where she didn't speak the language and all these dudes kept walking by and making commentary on their way in and out of the bar. She cannot sleep there. You know, she had to get them out of here. And so she felt completely justified in like, be mad then. (laughs) (laughs) But it was good. He was like, you know what? I guess I deserve that. Yeah, you did. Well, when they got home, it was not a good scene. Dolores is now getting angrier and angrier and jealouser and jealouser. Papa Bailey was out one night and they just started to 
have, you know, little bickering arguments that got more angry. And eventually Dolores said something disparaging about Maya's mother and Maya just came at her. So Dolores grabbed some scissors and slashed Maya. So Maya's bleeding all over the place. And so when Maya's father gets home, he finds his daughter having taken refuge in his car. And they have the little explanation about what happened. Then he realizes, oh, my God, you're bleeding all down the side of the car. But yet his pride gets in the way and he doesn't want to take her to the hospital because word cannot get out that Bailey's woman and his daughter had a fracas in his house. Because how would that look? It would look like he couldn't maintain control in his own house. That's not a man's behavior. And so instead, he took her to a friend of his house who took a look at the cut, determined it wasn't too deep, and sort of held her together with extra long band-aids. Yeah, that's yeah. responsible parenting. Even more responsible, he left her there and went back to Dolores. So as far as Maya and me are concerned, he sided with Dolores in this argument. He said, Maya, just stay here until your arm is healed, and then you can go back to your mom's house. And so Maya is in a quandary. She feels like she can't tell her mother what happened because what happened to the last person I told on? Mm -hmm. You know, there's that trauma happening again. I don't know what to do, but I can't stay here. And so she basically ran away and she wandered for a while. She would stay in, um, there were these like penny arcade things and they were open all night so she could kind of stay there with her eyes open or whatever. But eventually she found a junkyard that had a lot of old cars in it and oh, a refuge at last. And she climbed into one of the broken abandoned cars and fell asleep and was very relieved to be able to just fall asleep. She was exhausted, you know, and she felt safe for the first time in days. And she woke up to a bunch of eyes looking at her. She was not the only teenager looking for a place to sleep. There is a group of kids just about her age that had been sleeping in this junkyard for a very long time. And they really kind of welcomed her in. And the way Maya later tells the story, it sounds like this great adventure that they had where they would get food out of garbage cans or from the back door of restaurants or just how they survived on the streets, which sounds horrifying to me. But the way she tells it, it's like, wow, that's a great thing to happen to you. What a character building experience. Well, she kind of described it almost like a utopian teenage commune. There was a leader whose name was Bootsy and he was in charge of like administration. And if you earned any money, or obtained it in any way, like found it or whatever, you shared it out. You gave it to Bootsy and he bought food for people and he made sure everybody had supplies. Like a lot of the girls would go do shifts as waitresses at Greasy Spoons or they would babysit. A lot of the guys would like cut grass or like work as a laborer and they'd bring their money home and share it out with everybody. And Maya won money for the group um, winning third place in a dance competition. <laughs> so everybody used their talents that they had, but all races were welcome. Boys and girls were welcome. Bootsy had a very strict rule that boys and girls were not allowed to share cars together and everyone was to have their own car so that everybody would have their own space. It was kind of like Peter Pan world, like where Bootsy uh, yes. was Peter Pan and everybody yes. else was a lost boy. And, you know, you can see the appeal of that for a while, I guess. But she did say that that place set a tone for tolerance and community that lasted her her whole life. Like she learned a lot about community living and generosity and selflessness. 
Mm-hmm. So, you know, you can get a lesson in the oddest place. Right. But ultimately, after a month of living here, because she was supposed to be visiting her dad for three weeks, you know, so it's not like an excessive amount of time after she was supposed to come home. She called her mom and asked for her fair home. And Vivian calmly said, okay. She didn't give her a third degree. She just said, yes, okay, I'll take care of this. Let's get you home. So Maya arrived back in San Francisco after her month-long journey, a very changed young lady. And that will do it for part one of our coverage of Maya Angelou. It's been a rocky road so far. <laughs> um, many ups, many downs, many twists in the plot that we did not see coming. We will have all of our media recommendations in part two and in the show notes for part two, except the ones we talked about in this episode. So we suggest you go to our website, thehistorychicks.com, and we'll have a link to Lift Every Voice. And not only listen to it, we'll find the lyrics for you. And I'm going to encourage you to do what Maya did and read them out loud Mm. because it makes all the difference. Stay tuned for part two. And thanks so much for listening. Bye. You know the drill. If you liked what you heard today, tell a few friends or leave a review for us on your favorite podcatcher. The song in the middle is Spy vs. Spy by The Sound of 73. And the song at the end is Hymnal by Town Monster. See you next time. (laughs) 